I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Amos, Amos chapter 3. We will be looking at uh, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 15. We won't be reading all of these verses, but we will be able to gather from them a powerful message from God's Word. I've entitled this message today, Facing God's Judgment. A man sits on his front porch. He watches a thunderstorm as it approaches. The clouds are getting more broad and higher. The thunder is rumbling in the distance as he sees the lightning flashing. The wind is increasing in velocity. Then the rain begins to gently fall. It increases as the storm nears the man's house. Suddenly he hears on his phone an alert. He looks and there's a warning. The warning tells him that a tornado is coming. Seek seek shelter. So he quickly does. A few moments later, the storm hits and destruction is the result. The storm of God's judgment had been on the northern kingdom of Israel's horizon for some time. Although they were experiencing a period of peace and prosperity, the winds of change were beginning to blow. Due to their sins of empty worship, idolatry, injustice, and materialism, they had witnessed the clouds of God's judgment gather. God sent a prophet by the name of Amos from the southern kingdom of Judah, to the northern kingdom of Israel to warn the people to seek the safety of God's forgiveness before the widespread disaster fell. Could we be facing the storm of God's judgment here in America? In recent years, we have witnessed the worst attack on American soil in the history of our nation. We have watched some of the worst natural disasters occur in our lifetime. We have witnessed in recent months an onslaught of violence across our country. The streets of our cities are unsafe. Businesses have been burned to the ground, looting at every turn. Literally billions of dollars worth of damage occurring. We're in the midst of a plague. Hundreds of thousands of people have died in our country alone, and it's not over yet. People have been restricted in their movement. Churches have been closed down. Businesses have been closed. And even last Wednesday, we saw an attack on our capital in Washington. Some dismiss these as simply happen chance, but I believe we would do well to ask the question, is God allowing these things to get our attention? Is God trying to teach us something? Is he trying to tell us something? Are we listening to what he's saying? I want us to look at this passage of Scripture this morning to see how God expresses His judgment against sin. And I want you to be reminded that 
God is not just judging his people. As we will see here in Amos, God is dealing with the nation surrounding the people of God. So it's not just the people of God who are affected. It's other nations as well. Sometimes we reason that God is not interested in us because we're America. We're not not the nation of Israel. But the truth is, sin is sin in the eyes of God, and he always deals with it. Sin is very destructive. And God has to address it. He, in his holiness, cannot overlook it. So let's begin to look at this passage this morning and And I want to say to you that uh, we need to look at ourselves as we study this text and see if we need to seek the shelter of God's forgiveness as the storm of his wrath falls. So with that being said, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is God's judgment declared. We see this in chapter 3 beginning in verse 1, but to set up this sermon, I think it's important that we get a broader understanding of the context With that in mind, I want to invite you to turn with me now to chapter 1 of Amos. And I want to walk you through these two chapters quickly before we actually begin the body, the message. If you'll notice in verse 1, what we find here is an introduction. I won't read it, but I just want to point it out to you that it is an introduction to the book. It gives you some basic information about it. Verse 2 states the theme of the book. The Bible says, He said, the Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice. This is speaking about God's voice, warning about judgment. So the theme as set forth in verse 2 is the judgment against sin. This book is a book of judgment and how we are to respond to it. Then I want you to see, beginning in verse 3, we have a a number of of, uh, statements that are addressed to the various nations surrounding the people of God. And look with me closely at verse 3 because there is a refrain that you'll find beginning in verse 3 and moving all the way down until he begins to deal with his people. And let me read it for you. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. That is said over and over again relating to various nations. This is a way of stressing the innumerable sins committed by these nations. And first of all, the nation of Damascus is being used as an example of God's judgment. The reason that judgment is coming against Damascus is because of cruelty that they have shown during war. We see in verse 6 through verse 8 that judgment is coming to Gaza because of their slavery. We see in verses 9 and 10, judgment is pronounced against Tyre because of their slavery. And then in verses 11 and 12, judgment is announced toward Edom for failure to show pity. Judgment is declared against Ammon because of their bitter cruelty and selfish greed. And then we get to chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 3, and judgment is announced against Moab because of their cruelty toward Edom. In chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, judgment is announced against Judah. Now, let me stop here for just a moment and remind you that at this point in history, the nation of Israel had a divided kingdom. You had the southern kingdom of Judah to the south, composed of Judah, the large tribe, and one smaller tribe, Benjamin. And then you had the ten northern tribes that were called the northern kingdom of Israel. So here the focus is on the southern kingdom of Judah. And they are being judged because of rejecting God's law. That is, they did not receive and obey the word of God. They had the word. They knew what God wanted them to do, but they refused to do it. And so judgment was going to come to them. And then we come to verses 6 through 16 of chapter 2. And this ushers us into the focus, the primary focus of the book of Amos, and that is the judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. They are going to be judged by God because of their bribery, greed, adultery, immorality, selfishness, ingratitude, drunkenness, and rejecting God's revelation. That's what you'll find as you read these verses. These are the sins that God says he's going to judge his people because of their refusal to turn from them. And primarily because they had denied and rejected the word of God. So we see that judgment is being announced. It's being declared. Now with that as a setup to our passage today, let's go back to chapter 3 verses 1 through 15, and here we see God's judgment declared. The source of the declaration is mentioned in verse 1. Look at it in your text. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken. That is, the source of this revelation, the source of this announcement of judgment is from God himself. As a matter of fact, you will find over and over throughout this book the, the terminology, thus says the Lord, or the Lord has spoken. So you'll find this because it's a reminder that this message is from God. He's trying to get the, the attention of his people. He's telling them that this is not mere men who are speaking these words. This message is from God Almighty and it needs to be heard and heeded. So the source of the declaration is God. Then notice the subject of the declaration. We continue to read in verse 1. He says, sons of Israel against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So here we are reminded once again that the subject of this declaration is the judgment of God against sin. 
Then notice the surety of the declaration we see in verse 3. Now, what I want you to see in verses 3 through verse 8 is that there is a causal effect connection by way of statements throughout this section. And let me give you an example. There's example after example of this, and you'll see why in just a moment. Verse 3 says, Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Two men walking together is... Uh, is the, the effect, the appointment made was the cause. Let me give you another one. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? The lion roaring uh, is the effect. And uh, the catching of the prey is the cause. When, when the prey is caught... That's when the lion roars. He doesn't frighten the prey away before he catches it. He's, he's silent. And once he catches it, that's the cause, then he roars. That's the effect. Now skip on down. We won't read all of these, but skip on down to verse 8. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken who can but prophesy? Here he's saying that the cause is God. He's the lion. And the prophecy is the effect. That is, God has spoken and his servant Amos has declared what he's spoken. He's declaring the judgment of God. This is underscoring for us. The reality that this is a message from God and it is sure it is going to happen. This is going to take place. God is going to accomplish this. So it reminds us of the surety of this declaration of judgment. And then notice with me the summons of declaration. We see in verses 9 and 10. Proclaim To the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels of the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumult within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. These who hoard up violence. And devastation in their citadels. What he's doing here is he's summonsing, summonsing them to come to observe what has happened. What is happening in the streets. The violence and the crime and the oppression. God sees these things and he's drawing attention to these sins and other sins. That will surely bring about the judgment of God against his people. Then notice the soberness of this declaration of judgment. We pick up in verse 11. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord. Now, What you find here is a statement, a very somber statement, a sobering word. 
Uh, God is announcing that there will be an outside enemy that will come and break through your walls and destroy your city. They will come in and devastate you. They will take what they want for themselves. And as a matter of fact, this did happen. This was a prophecy, but it happened in 722 B.C. as the Assyrians came in to the northern kingdom of Israel and completely destroyed them. This nation would never rise again. Some of the inhabitants of the 12 tribes were able to escape and go down to the southern kingdom of Judah and become once again a part of that nation. Many of them were absorbed into the Assyrian Empire. Many were killed. Some became slaves. But the northern kingdom of Israel ceased to exist. As a matter of fact, if you trace their history, you will see that they did not have one good king in their entire existence. Not one. Not one. They were all wicked. And they led the people into ungodly behavior. So this is a very somber declaration. Let's continue to see it in verse 12. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with a corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Now he's saying here that... um, they, they will be completely devastated. In, in that day, shepherds were hired by people who owned sheep. They had the responsibility of taking care of the sheep. If something happened to one of the sheep, let's say a wild animal came in and, and killed a sheep, it was responsibility of the shepherd to take what was left of that carcass to the owner and say, here's what left. This is evidence that I didn't steal the sheep. This is evidence that a wild animal destroyed it. Here's an ear. Here's a piece of a leg. This imagery is being used here to say to the people of God that when the Assyrians come in, they're going to completely ravage the nation. There won't be anything left but just a little scrap of something here, a little piece of furniture there. It will be completely destroyed, and it was. Then look in verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. Bethel was a very important place because That was where Abraham built an altar when he first entered Canaan. It's also the place where his grandson Jacob, when fleeing uh, from his brother Esau, on his way to Laban's house, he stopped. He went to sleep. He was exhausted. And he dreamed about a stairway or a ladder going to heaven and angels ascending and descending on that ladder. We learn in the New Testament that is a picture of the Christ who would come and bring salvation. That salvation was from God alone. 
it was in Bethel that he too built an altar and made a genuine commitment to the Lord. Once he went to Laban's house for 20 years, the Lord sent him back to Bethel so that he could be renewed in his commitment to the Lord and his covenant be renewed before God. It was like calling him uh, to have a revival, a spiritual revival, as we all as Christians need from time to time. But uh, the, the altar mentioned here in this place of spiritual significance is referred to because the altar would sometimes be a place to which those who were fleeing for uh, some type of safety would run and they would grab to the hole and hold on to the, the horns of the altar. The, the horns of the altar is simply a reference to the corners of the altar that protruded out. God is saying here that the corners of the altar, the horns of the altar would be cut off and you wouldn't be able to grab them. Trying to find safety and protection from your enemy. You couldn't go there and, and ask God to help you because there's coming a time where you're going to cross this line. And it's going to be too late. Judgment is going to fall. And dear Christian friends, this is one thing that so concerns me. We talk about God's grace and his mercy and forgiveness and we should do that. Because he is gracious and merciful. He's long-suffering toward all of us. We can all test to that truth. But it is also true that when it comes to God, to God's remedial judgment, we as a nation can cross a line where it's too late. And God's judgment is going to fall. And I believe this is what he's saying to the nation. That there comes a point where you've crossed that deadline. And it's too late. Judgment is going to fall. Now that doesn't mean you can't be forgiven. It doesn't mean you can't be restored. But it also means that God's judgment is going to come. And that's what happened to the nation. The northern kingdom of Israel and later to the southern kingdom of Judah. Although they were not completely destroyed, they went into exile for 70 years in Babylon. Whereas the northern kingdom was completely destroyed. So he emphasizes here how, how serious this is, how sobering it should be to them. Then look in verse 15. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house, the houses of ivory, will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. Here he's addressing people in the nation, some of the leaders who had taken advantage of the citizens. They had taken advantage of the poor for their own personal benefit to the point that they had enriched themselves. They had not only a home, but they had a summer home. He's saying that this is going to be destroyed. I'm going to take all of these things away from you that you've taken away from others. This is a very sobering statement. So God's judgment is being declared here in this passage from the mouth of his servant, Amos. Driving down the road, you, you may see a sign that reads, wrong way. Now, if you see that sign, you better take heed. Because it's trying to warn you that you're moving in the wrong direction. Now, you don't have to pay attention to the sign. 
you can keep moving in that direction as fast as you like. But at some point, there's going to be a crash. That warning is there to say, turn and go in the other direction. Flee to safety. God's judgment is like a big red sign that reads wrong way. He declares his judgment so that we might confess and repent before we wreck and ruin our lives. So we see God's judgment declared. Secondly, notice with me God's judgment deserved. God's judgment deserved. We look in verse 1 all the way through verse 3 and we see God's judgment is deserved because of exploitation for wealth. Exploitation for wealth. Verse 1 says in chapter 4, Hear this word, you cows of Basham, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Uh, Here he's speaking about the cows of Basham. Uh, Basham was a place on the Samaritan mountains that was known for their uh, lush pastures. That's where they would take their cows to graze. The purpose of that was to fatten them up. And the cows really enjoyed it. But they did not realize that they were being fattened for the slaughter. And so here, God, through his servant Amos, is saying to the nation that you're being fattened for the slaughter. He's referring here to the wives of the men who have exploited the poor so that they could enrich themselves. So he refers to them as cows. Now, uh, ladies, what would you think if your pastor referred to you as cows, the cows of Douglas? Well, I can assure you I would be looking for a new church, or most likely a hospital. But he's referring to these women as cows of Basham, not in order to uh, speak derogatorily to them, but simply as a word picture that they're being fattened for the slaughter. And then notice, if you would, in verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by His holiness. Never forget that. We serve holy God. He is a God who is far beyond us. We are sinners, every single one of us. But God is holy and righteous and just and pure in all of His ways. He does not tolerate sin at all. He will not stand for wickedness, ungodliness, sin, transgression. He will not overlook it. He must deal with it. And especially among His people. He says, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. 
You will go out through breaches in the walls. Now, the picture here is of the Assyrians coming in and literally taking hooks and putting it in the jaws and in the noses of the people, the inhabitants of the northern kingdom, and bringing them through the walls of their city. How can they bring them through the walls of the city? It's because the walls have been broken into. You can walk right through them. And as I mentioned earlier, that exactly happened in 722 uh, 722 B.C. as the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom and destroyed them. He says, each one straight before her and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. So as we read verses 1 through 3, we see that this judgment is deserved because of the exploitation that occurred for wealth. But notice in verses 4 and 5, we see that this judgment is deserved because of, listen to this now, emptiness in worship. Emptiness in worship. Verse 4, enter Bethel. Now, we, we talked about Bethel earlier, didn't we? The significance, the spiritual significance of Bethel. Enter Bethel and transgress. Now, let me set this up for you here in verses 4 and 5. This is a sarcastic statement. God is using sarcasm here. He says, now, now note it. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Gilgal was where the people of God stopped as they were being led across the Jordan River to take the first city, which was Jericho. They stopped at Gilgal and circumcised all the men and the boys. It was an act expressing their commitment to the Lord. A renewing of their covenant with God. That they were the Lord and, and He was their God. That, that, that they were the Lord's and, and that He was their God. Now, notice if you would, He says, bring your sacrifices each morning. Your tithes every three days. Notice how ritualistic they were practicing these things. Uh, offer a thank offering also from that which is... is uh, is leavened and proclaim free will offerings make them known for so you love to do you sons of Israel declares the Lord God he's using sarcasm to say yo just come on in and, and go through the motions of religion yeah just come on in and 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 uh, and worship in an empty perfunctory sort of a way just come on in and do it Just come on in and multiply your iniquity. Their worship had become nothing but a process. It was nothing but a routine ritualistic practice. Oh, they were tithing. They were making sacrifices. They were going through the motions. But their hearts were far from God. Sin marked their ways. And friend, I'm telling you, this is a very apt depiction of the church in America today. I don't know that there's ever been a time in the history of our nation 
where the churches that call themselves followers of God practiced empty worship than we do in our day. We go through the motions, we act as if everything's all right, but we come to this place not having bent the knee, not having bowed the head, and not having a broken heart before God. We just go through the motions of religion and we leave the same way we came in. That's why they're being judged. And perhaps that's one reason we're being judged here in America today. There's as much division among the church today as there is in politics. The church is not focused on the Great Commission. We're dealing with superficial issues. We're dealing with things that have no eternal consequence. We're trying to deal with the problems of our society from a humanistic approach. God's tired of it. And then we see this judgment is deserved because of expressions of waywardness. Expressions of waywardness. Look at verses 6 through 13. Now here... God is speaking about their waywardness and how that he's going to deal with it and what he's done to try to address it. And here you see not only the righteousness, the holiness of God and that he deals with sin, but you also see his loving mercy, his patience. Now, let me walk you through these verses. Look in verse 6. You, you see famine. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities. What does cleanness of teeth mean? It means they didn't have anything to eat. Famine. And lack of bread in all your places. Yet... You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I sent a famine so you would be hungry in order to try to force you to think about me to turn from your sin, but you wouldn't have it. You continued in your sin. Famine didn't work. Then he talks about drought in verses 7 and 8. Furthermore, I withdrew the rain from you. While there was still three months until harvest, then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. God said, I see your sin. I sent famine, I sent drought, trying to get your attention, but you wouldn't listen. Wouldn't work. So he he calls them to have crop loss. Notice if you would in verse 9. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring 
your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. It says uh, the loss of crops didn't affect you. Famine, drought, loss of crops wouldn't get your attention. So defeat in war. Look in verse 10. I sent a plague among you. You know, God often uses plagues for various reasons. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. And I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet, you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. So the defeat in war didn't help. The plagues didn't help. Catastrophe also was brought. Look in verse 11. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. God sent famine. He sent drought. He sent lost crops, defeat in war, catastrophe. None of it worked. So God says, you've crossed the line. I couldn't get your attention. I wanted you to repent and turn to me. I wanted you to forsake your sin and begin to walk in obedience. But you wouldn't listen. So God's going to try something else. Look in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. The famine wouldn't work, the drought wouldn't work, the loss of crops wouldn't work, the defeat in war wouldn't work, the catastrophe wouldn't work. So now you're going to have to deal with me. It's time for you to face judgment. Verse 13, for behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Prepare to meet your God. That's God's judgment deserved. Friends, we have sown the seeds of sin and rebellion in this country for a long time. And I'm telling you, holy God, holy God is now going to bring about the consequences. He's allowing us to experience the consequences of our own rebellion. I wish I could stand here and say to you that, that uh, we're going through a difficult time and everything's going to be all right. Our nation has sunk into such a deep cesspool of sin. We may have gone so far, it's too late for us as a nation. Now that doesn't mean that 
uh, the territory of the U.S. will disappear. It doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't mean that there won't be some form of government. It doesn't mean that uh, there will be radical changes necessarily. The the there will be people living in this place most likely. But I'm telling you, the nation that I grew up in no longer exists. No longer exists. So what do we do? Well, I want to speak to you for the rest of this message about God's judgment diverted. God's judgment diverted. Look with me in chapter 5 now. I'm not going to read through all this because I don't have time, but I encourage you to do it. There are three things I want you to see. First of all, if we're going to be able to divert the judgment of God, if, there's still, if that's still a possibility... And that's debatable. What must we do? First of all, we must hear the word of God. That's what he says in verse 1, chapter 5. Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. You know what a dirge is? It's a funeral. It's a funeral song. It's a funeral song. What if you're having a party, let's say a Christmas party. And you invite all your friends, and you invite someone over to do the music. And they come in, and they don't sing Christmas carols. Uh, They don't sing happy songs. They sing songs that you would sing at a funeral. What he's saying is you had better sober up and understand what's going on, and you better hear God's voice. You better heed this warning. Not only hear the word of God, but seek the face of God. Look at verses 4 and following. I won't read all the verses. I'll read verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. That is, now that you've heard the message, turn to me. Look to me. Stop going your own way. Stop sinning and pursuing wickedness. Seek my face. I love the scripture that tells us that if we seek him, we will find him. If we search with all our hearts, God can be found when our hearts are right. And we're desirous of connecting with him and and looking to him and, and pleasing him and following him. But God will not be found If we have a duplicitous mind and heart. If we say we really love him and we want to serve him. But yet we're pursuing all these other things. Then notice also do the will of God. Verse 8 and following. Verses 8 through 15. I won't read all this but I'll read verses 14 and 15. Seek God and not evil. That you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Perhaps. Perhaps if we will hear the word of 
the Lord and seek His face and do His will, perhaps He will spare us. There's no guarantee. He'll forgive us. But that doesn't mean the judgment of God is not going to continue. I believe if you read Romans 1, if we had time, if we had another hour, I would go through Romans 1 with you. But if you read Romans 1, you see in that passage a good description of our nation. And it's describing a people that have turned from God. And friend, that's where we are in America today. So the only solution for us, the only hope we have is to hear God's warning from His Word. To seek God's face and to do God's will. Just as God brought judgment to the nations listed in chapters 1 and 2 and to His own people, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, God still hates sin and He will not allow it to continue unabated. Hear the word of the Lord. Seek the face of the Lord and do the will of the Lord. In 2004, an earthquake occurred in the Indian Ocean that caused a massive tsunami. 229,866 people died. The disaster happened with no warning, providing no time for the people to flee to safety. God in His grace has sent us warning after warning after warning. We have failed to heed those warnings. Now we are facing the consequences of our rebellion. Our only hope is to humble ourselves, confess our sin, repent of our sins, and turn to God in obedience. When you stand condemned before a court of law, The only thing you can do is to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You hope that they will show mercy. As we face the judgment of God, we need to ask for God's mercy to be shown to us and to our nation. Where we are going in the future as a country, I can't tell you. I do know this. It does not change our mission. We're still the people of God. There could come a day where we will be told we cannot freely speak. But I can tell you this. First Baptist is going to speak the truth. We're going to speak the truth. We may have to pay a consequence. We may have to pay a price for it. But we're going to be a light in the darkness. That's going to happen. We had, we had better make that decision now that no matter what, we're going to stand with the Lord. Father, we're grateful for your message. This is a message that is sobering. It's a very serious message, but we live in serious times. And we know that you're holy and loving and kind. You've demonstrated that in so many ways, and you've tried to get the attention of this nation in so many, so many ways. And we've not listened. We've continued our own way. Father, I pray that as a church and as a people, that we would heed your word, seek your face, and obey 
your will. And no matter what happens in this nation, help us to realize that you have called us to be on mission. You've called us to be the salt and the light. Help us not to be sidetracked any longer about issues that are not anywhere close to the importance of what you've left us here to do. And that is to bear witness to who you are. We thank you so much for Jesus who died and rose again that we might be saved by faith in him. For those who don't know him, I pray they'll call upon him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know the Lord?